Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. We've come to the end of our series today, which is always kind of bittersweet for me. I, I get uh, attached to these, these scriptures, and I just want to pour into them for, forever. But um, we've been unpacking these letters uh, from Jesus in the book of Revelation, these letters that he writes to seven churches that have been planted right in the heart of first century Roman Empire. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the last two of these churches. We're going to squeeze two into one. So um, we're just going to touch for a few minutes on the first one, and then we'll spend most of our time on the second one. Uh, But I want to dive right in because there's a a lot to discover in a short amount of time. These two churches, it's fitting that we end with two because they really provide a really fascinating contrast uh, in the right and wrong way for us to reflect who Jesus is to our community and to our culture. So we're going to start off, we're in Revelations chapter 3, if you want to follow along there. Revelations chapter 3, the first church we're going to look at is the church of Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia, this is a great church, this is a wonderful church, home of delicious cheesesteaks, uh, right, patriot vanquishing football teams, and uh, um, sorry Roger. I know, that, I know it was heartbreaking for some of you. Um, no, no, this is a whole different city. Whole different, this is the ancient city of Philadelphia, of course. And we're going to be looking at, you see how they, they sort of complete the circle here of the churches that we've been looking at. And so we're in chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Almost seems like a backhanded compliment, but it's true. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, there's a powerful phrase we've seen before, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. In verse 10, he goes on, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Remember that word here. This is the crown that refers to the Olympic wreath that the, the winners would wear. Not, this isn't the royal crown of a king. By the way, you know the Olympics have started. Did you, have you been watching any of the Olympics? Is anybody like me? You're just like, you're a slave at midnight. You can't help but watch the, the, the guys pushing the stone and then mopping the ice in front of the stone. I just, I'm like, I know I need to go to sleep, but I just can't stop watching. Anyway, off subject. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. <clears throat> Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. We're just going to look for a few minutes, some very interesting details about uh, this letter. Also look at a little background on Philadelphia because that teaches us some things. Philadelphia, interesting thing here, it's the one of only two churches that gets no rebuke, only praise and encouragement. Philadelphia, this church isn't very pretentious. They're not super huge, uh, but they're faithful and they suffer for their faithfulness. Now about the city, the, the, 
The church is a suffering church. The city is kind of a paranoid city. And it's paranoid because of earthquakes. Um, the, one, it's in, it was planted, the city was planted. It's one of the youngest of the cities when this letter was written. It was only a couple hundred years old. So it was kind of like a new city to them. Um, one of those regions that's very earthquake prone, they planted the city, bless their heart, right on a fault line. Um, uh, so, so that was a, always a trouble. It was totaled, the whole city was totaled several times. Uh, but the city's inhabitants were very proud of their city. They didn't want to leave it, and they uh, wanted to re- keep rebuilding it. It was at a major crossroads between the east and west. Um, it was built on volcanic, volcanic soil that made for really good crops. So there were a lot of reasons they loved it. Um, but history tells us that, especially during the writing of this letter, during this period, they had tremors almost on a daily basis. I mean, this was just constant tremors. And so the Philadelphians had, had grown accustomed to running out of town uh, every time everything started shaking, and they would sometimes sleep in tents overnight until sort of the little pattern of tremors would, would settle down. And some people, they say, even started just deciding to leave uh, the inner part of the city and started making their homes right on the outskirts of the city uh, because it was just safer. And so it actually created one of the first suburbs in the ancient world. It's very interesting. So folks would live in the suburb, and sometimes they would be, you know, going back and forth during the day into the city to work, and they would run out every time things started shaking. That was kind of the way of life in Philadelphia. It's not a very large city, pretty modest, not flashy or famous. One thing, though, Philadelphia did enjoy, because of their earthquake proneness, uh, was a lot of government aid. They got a lot of government aid. Um, after two devastating earthquakes in that first century, there were two that were just about 30 years apart, and both of them just really, really destroyed the city. After both earthquakes, uh, the Caesar of the time halted all taxes from being collected in Philadelphia. Uh, so for five years, he said, for five years, you don't have to pay any taxes. Now, that would be pretty, pretty nice, right? It'd be kind of like, you know, what, what if our president said, hey, Hurricane Harvey came in. A lot of you were heard. No taxes are collected in the Houston area for five years. We're just going to pour in all the money you need and no taxes. You'd probably, you know, reelect that president a lot. Well, in, in, their, in their case, they loved the Caesar because of this. He was a big, he was a real hero to them. They were very proud of, of the emperor and they worshiped him like a hero, which also made it extremely awkward to be a Christian in Philadelphia because you're one of those people who still won't bow to the Caesar. You won't burn incense to the great Caesar who gave us all this aid. And so the church endured a lot of hardships, not only because of the natural disasters, the earthquakes, of course, affected the church members as well, but they're also feeling backlash from uh, just not bowing to the empire. Now, I just want to look at a couple of... Uh, first of all, let me show you this right here. Uh, because of all the earthquakes, because they were constantly trying to buttress up their buildings, especially their temples, and, and you know, kind of the only thing they knew to do back in the ancient world was really build more pillars. Build more pillars up, and uh, it didn't work very well, but that was the only thing they did. You know, they didn't have earthquake science. And so um, Philadelphia is the site today of some of the largest ruins of pillars in, in the world. They, they, you can see how huge these pillars are. That was to try to keep the buildings from falling down, um, and it didn't work, but that's what, that's what they did. They built these enormous pillars. Um, a couple of phrases in this letter I just want to look at real quickly. One phrase is where Jesus says, I am he who holds the key of David. The one who holds the key of David. This is a a passage, a reference right out of Isaiah, um, 
who holding the keys in the ancient world here was a sign of authority and power. You have the ability to control whether a door is locked or unlocked, who passes through. You're in a position of influence, of power if you hold the keys, right? Ask anybody who, who's 16-year-old is asking them for keys to the car. Whoever holds the keys, that's a very important question, right? Uh, who holds the keys? And Jesus is reminding this church, he is the one. He's reassuring, I hold the keys to your life. I hold the keys. And he says, if I open a door for someone and I'm the only one holding the keys, rest assured be encouraged that no other individual on earth can shut that door. If he opens a door, nobody can shut it. And no one can open a door that I've shut, he says, right? So you and I can have that peace. We can have that assurance. If God opens a spiritual door for you, if God opens a door, it will be open to you. It's not going to slam shut in your face. Great news, right? Of course, the trick is uh, having the discernment to know, is this a door that God is opening or not? right? Or is this just happenstance? Um, that's a whole other sermon. So keep coming back. Another thing I want to I look at a phrase here, those who are a synagogue of Satan. Now, we've seen that before, right? In week two with the church of Smyrna, uh, he mentions this. Um, these are the individuals, just to remind us, these are individuals who claim to be Jews, but Jesus says uh, they're not worthy to call themselves Jewish. They're liars. Uh, they may be ethnically Jewish or genetically Jewish or whatever, but Jesus says Jewish is really a matter of the heart. And, and these are people from the Jewish community who are joining their Roman neighbors who have aligned themselves with the Roman Empire in persecuting the Christians. And so Jesus says that, that's even against Jewish law. They're, they're basically idolaters uh, because they've aligned themselves with the wrong thing. They're trying, you know, uh, so Jesus assures the church that those he, those people in your community, those people uh, that they're, even when, when you're facing persecution, even when people are cursing you, that God loves you, and there is going to be a day that even those who call you cursed will have to acknowledge that God's favor is on your life. Amen. Okay. And the last thing I want to look at in this letter here is this phrase, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. The one who is victorious, I'll make a pillar. So it's interesting to me. As we're seeing with these letters, they're very personal. And it's interesting, the city that suffers the most from earthquakes is the church that Jesus uses this structural uh, analogy of stability uh, as a way to contrast. This, this was a people who knew what it was like to have things crumble all around them. And, and for years, the Philadelphians would, would do everything they could. They would try to support their buildings with extra, extra columns, as I said. It even became a custom in the city to... Uh, name a new pillar after some citizen who had, you know, given some special service to the community or maybe financed that pillar or something like that. And so they would name it and put their name on there. And Jesus tells them, you'll be a pillar in God's temple. And guess what? You'll never have to run outside. You know, nothing will start shaking where you got to run outside of that that temple and run out to the, to the hills. God's kingdom is eternal. He's talking about security. He's talking about stability. All those things that you're lacking in the earthly sense, he's telling them you're going to discover this in the, the spiritual or heavenly sense. I remember he's using this as a metaphor. This is Revelation. He uses a lot of symbolism here. Um, he's not saying he's literally going to turn people into pillars in, in the temple. Um, he's making a point. In fact, if you look over in chapter 21, Jesus says that in God's new kingdom, there is no temple. So here he says, I'm going to make you a pillar in God's temple in the New Jerusalem. 
And then in 21, he says, actually, there is no temple. There's no temple because Jesus himself is the temple because we'll experience uninterrupted personal relationship with Jesus himself. It's not like we're going to go to church to experience, you know, walking in the Spirit. No, no, no. That, it, Jesus is right there. He's all around. So that's just, just a good reminder to us not to get too bogged down in literal uh, meanings and uh, behind the symbolism of Revelation. Let the context interpret the point he's making. And here he's making the point of stability uh, and, and security. So we can be discerning there. Uh, we could say more about uh, this letter. We could say more about Revelation, but that's a whole other sermon again. For the sake of time, I want to jump to the last of the seven letters of these churches. And here we go. We're going to talk about the church of Laodicea, the church of Laodicea. This is probably the most famous or maybe infamous of the seven churches. If ever you've heard sermons about the seven letters to the seven churches, this is probably the one you heard the most uh, about. It's famously known as the lukewarm church, the city of Laodicea. Let's talk about that for just a second, because this city was a trip. Laodicea was at the center of commerce for the area. It was kind of like metropolis. Laodicea was was pretty awesome town. Incredibly prosperous, high-powered city of its day. Um, they were known among many things. One of the things they were known for was a, a, a particularly prized glossy black wool that they manufactured and rose and, you know, rose the sheep and made it and manufactured this. And they even had these like proprietary secrets for how they put it together. Nobody knows exactly how they did it. It was very carefully guarded. In fact, to this day, they don't know exactly how did they manufacture this beautiful wool, but it was, it was their thing. Um, because they were a very rich city, they were a banking center for the whole region, uh, completely self-sufficient, very, very independent. In fact, if other cities were in trouble, kind of like Philadelphia, if other cities, Laodicea would help finance their projects. They had that kind of wealth. One time, the same earthquake that had just decimated Philadelphia also destroyed Laodicea. The same earthquake at the same time. And uh, while the aid was pouring in for Philadelphia, Rome offered a bunch of aid to Laodicea, and they said, no thanks, we're good. Laodicea told Rome uh, they turned down aid from Rome because they were so wealthy. They were able to rebuild their entire city all by themselves better than it was before. So pretty, pretty cool. Um, very independently mined city. They also had a famous medical school. I mean, you wouldn't think medical school in the ancient world. Yeah, you know, for, for, for them, it was really, really advanced, this medical school. And people would come from miles around to attend this medical school. Uh, and they would come, and they also claimed to have developed some kind of an eye ointment that cured blindness and some other things. I don't know if it worked or not, but they were very famous for this eye cream ointment thing. Um, so world-class financial center, uh, world-famous medical school, world-famous eye ointment, world-famous black wool. They're doing good. They have it all. They're educated. They're successful in need of nothing. So let's read Jesus' words to Laodicea. To the, these are the words of the amen. This is the only time I can find where Jesus identifies himself by this title, the Amen. Very interesting. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of the other. Um, by the way, Philadelphia, as we said, one of only two churches who gets only praise from Jesus. Laodicea is one of only two of these churches that gets no praise. 
Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The actual Greek, the NIV is very polite about this. Um, the actual Greek is a, is a lot more graphic. It is to spewer vomit, to spewer vomit. I'm gonna, so how would you like to hear Jesus say, yes, we got a letter from Jesus. And this is what he says. You know what you guys make me want to do? You make me want to hurl. You want to vomit. That's what Jesus says to them. He calls it like it is. Now, I want to look at this phrase here, this hot, cold thing. I've heard this preached a lot of different ways. I'm going to be really honest with you. This concept has bugged me my entire life. Something about this has bugged me because this, this idea that God would rather us be hot or cold than to be lukewarm. Uh, because I never could understand if, if hot is so fantastic and being cold meant, you know, you're wretched sinner or something like that. Why would Jesus say, I'd rather you be that than lukewarm? The, the other night, everyone in my family took a shower before me and I got in there. There was, there's no hot water left, but it was room temperature. And I got to tell you, that was better than ice cold. You know, in that moment, I'm thinking it's not fun, but lukewarm will pass. You know, so, so this, this has always kind of bugged me. It turns out, a little, a little background knowledge helps us understand what he's saying. Our problem is, is what we often do, is, is that we read these 2,000-year-old scriptures, and we, we uh, read their metaphors and their figures of speech, and we assume they're the same as our contemporary metaphors. And uh, so we read them from this modern technological worldview and assume, well, obviously, hot is really good and, and cold is really bad, Right? I know this because, like, this is Valentine's. If I come home Valentine's Day with some flowers and I say, hey, Mel, you, you're looking hot. That's meant to be good. It's not super romantic, but it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm making an attempt. Um, if I say, uh, baby, you're acting cold, that means I've done something I need to repent of. <laughs> right? So there's, like, there's obviously, you know, cold, cold is always bad, right? Um, Years ago, I was thinking, uh, you know, we had a, a, a lot of our teens who are now maybe a little younger than me, uh, who, who grew up though a couple of decades ago, we always went to a youth conference called Acquire the Fire, right? Acquire the Fire. It wasn't Acquire the Snow, it was Acquire the Fire, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it, it was all about inspiring youth to get engaged with the faith. You know, in a, in a, in a few weeks, our teen, teens are going to a, the Kingdom Youth Conference, right? It's a good name. They didn't rebrand Acquire the Fire, Catch the Cold, right? Not many kids would have went. Um, so this cold, this hot, cold thing, but what Jesus is actually saying starts making more sense with a little history lesson because here's an interesting thing about the city of Laodicea. They had ingeniously come up with a solution to solve one very glaring problem with Laodicea, there was no water. There was no close water supply. They didn't have a spring. They didn't have a river. They weren't located next to a pond. Nothing. So what they did was actually pretty cool in theory. Um, they, they, because they were so wealthy, they were able to import their water from far away. And so what they did, this is so cool, they, they constructed miles of this intricate system of pipes and aqueducts what was even cooler is that they took it from two different sources. In one direction, the aqueducts came from the mountains, so it brought down this, 
this glacially cold water, right, that was very refreshing. And then they, from another direction, they were about 10 miles away from hot springs. And they were aqueducted, is that a word? You can aqueduct the water into the city from the hot springs. This was amazing. And the result was intended to provide the citizens of this wealthy city hot and cold running water on demand, completely unheard of in a, in a day with no refrigeration or, or water heaters. There's only one problem. After traveling through these pipes for miles and miles and miles, no matter how hot the hot water was when it left the hot springs, it wasn't even warm when it reached the city. And no matter how cold the wonderful mountain water was when it, when it left the mountains, after traveling through these pipes warmed by the sun, it was nothing but plain old, tepid, room-temperature water. And on top of that, it tasted terrible because it picked up all these limestone deposits along the way. So what they had is this, you know, multi, what I would, we would think of as multi-million dollar project to show off their brilliance. And what they got was tepid, room temperature, terrible tasting, useless water that they had to boil just to use. And so this, this was a real source of embarrassment for them. Jesus knows how to uh, nail prideful people where it hurts, doesn't he? So this is important. Jesus is not saying he would rather you be spiritually cold. Please get this. He just got done ripping five other churches for being spiritually cold. He is not saying he's cool with that. I remember thinking as a teenager, well, maybe it's better. I'll just go be like a full-on sinner. Jesus will have more, apparently he has more respect for that than like keep struggling all the time. No, that, that's, that's missing the point. What Jesus is talking about here is identity. He's talking about impact, impact and identity, understanding what makes you unique, knowing who you owe that to, being what you were made to be, and who made you that. That is what this is about. See, the Laodicean church had gotten this mistaken notion that they were amazing because they had wealth, they had ingenuity, and their life was easy, and they didn't need anyone. Apparently, they were blessed because they were awesome. And they earned it. On top of, you know, we earned it. We work hard for this. And so it's ours. And the reality was that they had forgotten that without God, without love, we are doomed. We're nothing without him. But through Christ and what he has done for us, we've been reconciled to God. We're joint heirs. We're joint heirs with him. Through Christ, we can do all things. Not through our might, not through our wisdom, not through our wealth. Fire and ice are both pretty useful. And the point here he's making is hot water and cold water are useful. They can both be very useful. Lukewarm water, not so much. It's not useful. This isn't a metaphor about your feelings. This isn't Jesus trying to make you feel guilty because you don't feel extreme emotions all the time. This word from God is about our impact and our identity. If, if God created you to be a cool drink of water of serving and compassion to this world, then walk in that anointing. Allow him to empower you to be that. If God gave you the personality and the set of giftings that's like boiling lava hot evangelism and the exhortation, allow him to fill you. Allow him to anoint you and accomplish his will in you and through you. Let him develop you into something even greater than you can be on your own. You see where I'm coming from? If you take the gifts that God's given you and you think that you don't need God to be a success, 
I don't need, you, you think, I can do this on my own. You'll find at the end of the road that you have nothing worthwhile to offer back to him. The Laodiceans tried and tried and tried, by the way. The history books tell us they tried so many different ways throughout the years to figure out this problem, to solve this problem, how to heat the water as it was coming, to keep it hot, how to keep the water cold, right? They never could figure it out because that water could not sustain its own temperature. It couldn't sustain its own temperature. It flatlined before it reached the city. And the church of Laodicea reflects this. They think of themselves as self-sufficient. They, they actually exalted themselves right out of their need for God. And in doing so, they exalted themselves out of their usefulness to the kingdom. Jesus says this kind of pride makes him sick. Lukewarm people who take his gifts and talents and then have the nerve to say to him, we're good. We're good now. We don't need you, God. Let's keep going. In verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, Jesus is very intentional here. He's not losing his cool. He's not just not, he's not ranting. He loves, remember, he loves this church. He's very skillfully performing surgery exactly where the tumor is. What was Laodicea known for? Being well-dressed, well-educated, wealthy, healthy. And he says, actually, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He attacks everything that's a source of their pride. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. This phrase was really interesting to me. Buy from me gold. This, this felt like a very normally un-Jesus-y thing for, for me to see. So I, I was looking at this. Why would he say that? Because when it comes to grace, which is freely given, this free gift of salvation, but here he says, buy, I want you to purchase this because salvation is a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. But, but our sanctification, that is our spiritual maturity. You know what actually costs something? Growing up costs something. There's something that Jesus actually wants us to partner with him and work at. Not being saved, but being a disciple. We're not saved just to flake out in the hot tub and have Jesus serve us, you know, with health and wealth and everything, anything we need till rapture day. That's not why we were saved. He says, no, 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 you were, you're blessed to be a blessing. And I saved you so that you can grow and you can, you can give, you can be a functional member of the body of Christ. And Jesus says, we get to work together at this. He partners with us in this, right? This, these verses 17 and 18, they, they remind me that sometimes our problem isn't the problem. Our biggest problem is our inability to see the problem. Sometimes our biggest problem is the inability to see the problem. Sometimes our main problem is not the most dangerous thing of all. Sometimes it's not sin that, that sends people to hell because his grace is sufficient. Sometimes it's delusion. Sometimes delusion is what really rocks people. And Christ gets all up in the face of folks who are delusional, people who aren't humble about their need for his saving grace. Isn't that who he kind of really gets bent out of sorts with when, in the Gospels? The sinful, the prostitutes, the tax collectors? Man, he eats with them. He loves them. 
He talks to him. He has patience with him. The people who think they don't need him, oh, man. Delusion is a dangerous place to live in. He tells him, you, you think you're rich, but you need to buy from me gold refined in the fire. That means it's genuine. It's the real thing. It's not a fool's gold of success or something. You love your world-famous fashion. <laughs> he says, humble me and come to me, what? For white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He's hitting them right where they live. The church of Laodicea, they suffered from two things that are still tripping up disciples today. Two things. One is self-sufficiency, and the other one is self-deception. Self-sufficiency and self-deception. Self-sufficiency, you know, sometimes the material blessings, uh, sometimes a material blessing is not always a blessing. Have you ever seen anybody come across some wealth and it just ruined them? Sometimes a blessing is not always a blessing. Sometimes I think maybe we need to thank God more for the very thing that we think is an inconvenience because it might just be helping us to keep looking to him as our sufficiency, right? Anytime I grow, anytime I get blessed right out of my need for God, that's a dangerous place to be. I'm on shaky ground. And sometimes the conviction that we feel from the Holy Spirit, that's not fun to experience, Nobody loves, yeah, I was convicted today. Nobody loves that. But, but it's actually evidence of God's love. It's evidence of his love. His love that he's not willing for us to continue being delusional. Because that sometimes that's our biggest problem, is delusion. Look at how he finishes this letter. I was almost in tears when I was reading this. After reading the first part, and then you go to this. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now, it's very important. These final words, to me, reveal more about Jesus than anything else. I don't want, to, I don't want us to miss this. Those whom I love. We throw that word love around, and we see love a lot in the Bible. There are a lot of different kinds of love. This love that he mentions here, this is not agape love, if you know your Greek. It's not that sort of very high, holy benevolence that we're all supposed to have for each other. The love, he says here, is phileo love. The warmest, most tender affection. I love. I love you, he says. The God of the universe just gets done giving this stinging rebuke. And now it all takes on a new flavor because we find out he's not just lost his temper here. This is a mother screaming for her child to get out of the road because a car is coming. This is love that is passionate. He, he reminds them, you are the apple of my eye. You're the people I cherish and love, my children, my bride. This is this love. So be earnest and repent, he says in verse 20. So I, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Oh man, get this. This, this isn't a God who's pouting. He's not giving them the cold shoulder until they, you know, prove they like him again. This God is deeply anguished over your betrayal, and yet he's the one who stands knocking on your door. 
waiting for you to open it so he can fellowship with you again. That is what this God is doing. You can reject him outright, or you can fall at his feet in worship, but, you know, he's given you that free will to decide. He's given you that choice. But the one thing he can't tolerate is indifference. He won't tolerate our just paying lip service to him once a week so we can go back to dating around on Monday. He won't tolerate that. Why? Because God has one overriding goal for you. His, his end goal for you was not just getting you to say that prayer and then you're, you're good, you're, you're on the team, and then he's not going to care about you anymore. He, he's not some YouTuber just trying to pad his subscription numbers, right? This God isn't content with you just labeling yourself as a Christian. God has one desire for you, and it is complete, overwhelming transformation. That's his desire for you. Transformation of you. He's that loving. He's that passionate. Transformation. He wants to help you become more and more like Jesus. That's what he's after. All cards on the table. Jesus, God says, this is what I'm after. I'm wanting to, I want to turn you into more and more like Jesus. It's, and it begins with repentance. It begins with repentance. It's making that decision to leave all the other idols behind and follow him wherever he leads us. Verse 21, he says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's our marching orders right here. We keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We keep our ears focused on the Holy Spirit. Be tuned in. Keep our ears tuned in to the Holy Spirit because the Spirit's talking. The Spirit is speaking to all of us. He's speaking right now to every single one of us. And what he is saying is repent, renew, and remain. Repent of the way you're going. That means turn around, choose a new direction. Repent of the ways that you've missed the mark. Renew your love for Christ and for other people that he created you to put on display. Renew that love and remain faithful to him. Endure what comes. Endure it. For the prize, which is more of him. Endure for the prize. If, if you're here today and you've been thinking about coming to Christ or following Christ, but you haven't quite made that commitment to him, I want to invite you to do so now. In the words of Jesus, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, as he say he's going to come in and chastise you for all the, all the things you've been doing wrong? No. He says, I'm going to come in and we will share a meal together as friends. He's knocking. He doesn't require you to be perfect. He doesn't require you to have all your questions answered. What he wants is a relationship with you. And, and what you're going to discover in the process I promise you what you discover is, is nothing short of transformation like, like you never thought possible. So if you hear a gentle knocking this morning as, as we pray, don't leave him standing there. Open the door. Let Jesus into your life. You can ask him right there where you're sitting or even better, in a moment our prayer partners are going to come forward and you can come up and pray with them. 
If you need someone to do, do the heavy lifting for you, just come and say, I need, I need prayer. And these are people of faith who will pray. Amen. They will take, take you to the master. Amen. They will pray. And, and for all of us here now, all, all my friends, my, my generation's tribe, okay? We're at the end of this series. So we're tying this thing together. Why have we been talking about this? Because we want to know what God has for us. We want to know, want to know what kind of church he wants us to be. We want to know what's, what's in the way. What's getting in the way of us being everything that you want us to be, of us reflecting Jesus to our world. Is there, you know, is there anything smudging up our mirror that we need to clean up? And I, I, I love you guys. And, and this, this journey we've been on together through these seven churches, hearing their stories, we hear their stories. And in so many ways, we hear our own stories. I leave it to you to decide which of the seven is most like generations. Some of you will be wise enough to see bits of us in all of them. And if you are wise, you will take encouragement from God's words of encouragement to these churches, and, and you will take rebuke from his words of discipline and rebuke, because both are what we need. Both are what we need. Let's stay true to the calling that he's given us. What is the calling he's given us? Everyone, everyone, everyone making disciples. That's you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Everyone making disciples. It's no one walking alone. That includes you and you and you and you. No one walking alone. That is a, that's what he's called us. Why is he doing this? Where is he taking us this year? Because he's given us this vision of ourselves. He, God has given us a vision of our future selves. And this vision is a people helping each other becoming more like Jesus. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that why we come to church? To become more like Jesus? And what's su- super cool is it's not the, the job of the paid professional clergy to make you more like Jesus. It's actually the part of the job is is everybody around you right now, the person sitting next to you, they get to help you become more like Jesus. And you get to help them become more like Jesus. So that's what we want to do today. Amen. Are you with me? Amen. Prayer partners, come on up. Father God, we love you so much. I thank you, Lord, for your, your mercy. Father, your love, we can't even fathom it. You love us so much. We can only compare it to things that we, we understand, things like a, a parent's love for a child, a, a spouse's love for each other. But Lord, we know it's, it's beyond our imagination because you gave your only begotten son so that we could be reconciled to you. You gave him so that we could learn how to live, so that we could have relationship with you, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Nothing counted against us. We can't fathom that kind of love, but we get to enjoy it. And I thank you, Lord, that you are busy turning us more into the image of Jesus. Make us more like Jesus every day. Give us the courage, Lord, to let you shine that bright light inside us and change us from the inside out, Father God. And help us to be that instrument of change for each other, Lord, in love and humility and grace. Help us to be like Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. If you're here today and there's anything you need prayer about, come down and get these awesome people to pray with you. They're ready to pray with you right now in faith to bring that request before the Lord. And if you do, if today is the day, you're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to just surrender to Jesus. Whatever, whatever it comes, I, w- I want him to lead me there. I'm ready for Jesus to lead me there. I'm tired of trying to make up my own way. Come down and let these guys pray for you right now, okay? You guys have a wonderful, wonderful day, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.